The following audio is from LifeHouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or at lifehousechurch.org. Our culture has shifted in its values around gender and gender identity and gender roles, the meaning of marriage, and even parenting uh, over the last many years. And so a real personal question is, how has the shifting of our cultural values regarding these matters uh, affected you personally? I I don't mean the news. I don't mean the controversy around it. I I mean, how has you shifting with the cultural values affected your life? Has it affected your life for the better or the worse? How has the changing tide of values around parenting affected your children and the children you uh, help, right? Whether you're a teacher, a therapist, whether you work in a classroom or you, you watch children, in what way you influence children, have you seen children improve for the better or are they dealing with greater complications? Has the, has the issues around gender roles and gender identity uh, improved The matters like gender dysphoria, is there less um, dysfunction or greater dysfunction? And so really what what I'm asking is not so much a dissection of the values themselves, which is how are we doing with that? Are our children more or less well adjusted? Are they needing more or less mind and mood altering medication? Are they seeking and are we seeking more or less mental health treatment? Are we dealing with more or less suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, and other significant and serious mental health crises? So the reality is, uh, based on a lot of research, there's a resounding no to each of those answers. No, we are not doing better. No, things are not improving. Marriages are not getting healthier. People are not suggesting that they are happier. There is not less mental health disorders or fewer disorders. There are not fewer people struggling with mental health and emotional health disorders. In fact, very much the opposite. We're experiencing a growing mental and emotional health crisis. And so just me bringing this up in the church, I know that probably many of you right now kind of like are cringing, like, oh no, where is this sermon going? Why, why would you cringe? Well, at least some of you are cringing or maybe cr- thinking of cringing because of this, because the moment we insert a Christian or biblical view into these issues, especially highly culturally controversial issues. Um, This is what happens. Most people would say, meaning not necessarily you, but broadly in our culture, would say that Christianity and the Bible are not just irrelevant on these matters, but are actually the problem in these matters. That you could blame the Bible and Christianity for many of the issues that we're facing in society. Why? Because... 
Christianity and the Bible have these regressive and oppressive views around gender and gender roles and marriage and parenting, and are really just trying to bring us back to the era of the 1950s or much earlier, maybe trying to bring us back 2,000 years from the progress we've made. And so the alternative is that we continue down the road we're on, which, so let me just give you a, a statement on that from not just my observation, but I think so much of what our society is promoting is that love is a buzzword. Love is a buzzword that really is used to encourage and even excuse destructive lifestyles, exploitation, and abuse, all in the name of love, where the vulnerable become victims to other people's desires to use love to justify destruction. So this is not me preaching. This is just a brief analysis of the world we live in today. And so is there a, another way? Is there a better way? And so I'm gonna bring you back and I'm, I am gonna speak right from the Bible and I'm gonna read specifically some passages that were written as letters, right? So... Often the Bible is both preached and used and then maligned as like this document that was just kind of like out of nowhere, it just suddenly appeared and went, here you go, here's the Bible. But that's not really how we got the Bible. Whether you know it or not, right, the Bible is made up of 66 different books in the New Testament of the Bible, which is where you're introduced to, to the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Um, the New Testament of the Bible is several of the, books of the New Testament are written as letters. I'm gonna be referring to two of those letters who were written, written each to the church in the city of Ephesus. Now, the reason why this is relevant to us today is because the city of Ephesus may remind you a little bit or may look a little bit like what we're experiencing as a society. The city of Ephesus, uh, which is you know, was a pretty large, rapidly growing city. It was wealthy, uh, and at the center of the city, there was the temple to Artemis, a, a goddess of, or a virgin goddess of erotic love. And so in order to worship that goddess, which the worship of that goddess was kind of at the center and it was central to like the wealth and the economy and the culture of their city. And so the way they worshiped was by having temple prostitutes and by the sexual exploitation and experimentation with others, right? And so imagine an entire culture centered around sexual experimentation, sex, sexual exploitation. Think about how that affects relationships. When people are used to getting what they want and taking what they want, regardless of what it costs someone else, even if it's destructive or abusive, that's going to affect people's views on gender and gender roles, on marriage, parenting. And so they had a kind of an upheaval in their society, how all of these relationships were viewed. And they used love to justify exploitation and experimentation of other people. And so then you have the church. 
introduced to the city of Ephesus. And these letters are written after the church has not only been started, but now going. And the church is actually really effective in Ephesus. It was reaching a lot of different people. People were coming in. They were believing in Jesus by faith. Maybe just a little bit like Lifehouse. And as they were coming in, though, the challenge was... They were bringing their culture with them and they were, they were forcing their culture onto the church rather than Christianity changing their lives. And so two different authors who were also pastors in that church wrote letters back to the church of Ephesus later in their lives. One of them is John. John was the last living disciple of Jesus, right? So Jesus had 12 disciples. John's the only one left living. All the others had actually been put to death. John is uh, writing to the church in Ephesus. He writes three different letters. We're going to focus on his first letter, and I'm going to read just portions of 1 John chapter 2, where he's basically creating this contrast between how everyone around us lives compared to how people who believe in Jesus should live, centered on this idea of love. So here we go. We're going to jump in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father. I mean, this isn't from God, but it's from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So he's saying there's things that are temporary and there are things that are eternal. There's a love that is long lasting and there is a love that is superficial um, and cheap and quickly fades. He said, so what you call love, what our society calls love, it's not real love. It's actually lust. It's lust driven by our eyes. What we see, we want and we take it. What we feel, the lust of the flesh, I desire this, so I take it. Or pride of life, I see myself as better and so I can get what I want. I deserve whatever it is that I feel. And so he goes, this kind of love is destructive. It wrecks relationships and it wrecks me. He goes, but there's a better way, another way. So here's the better way. I'm just gonna kind of summarize what John writes and then the apostle Paul writes also to the church in Ephesus in a statement. And it's this, love Godly love, the kind of love we read about in the life and teachings of Jesus can be summarized in this statement. Love is preferring others above ourselves. The way we see love lived out in society, especially when you jump into a lot of controversial issues, you could say it's very simply this. The kind of love that we see modeled is selfish. I do what I want. I do what feels good. Because it feels good, it must be good. I take what I want regardless of how it affects others. But a God kind of love drives us to prefer others above ourselves. Love prefers. In fact, just for the sake of your memory, why don't you lean over to somebody next to you and if you're joining us online, you can yell this in your house or if you're driving, you got somebody else in the car, you can say it. Just say, love prefers. I wasn't very enthusiastic. All right, so seriously, seriously, lean over and say, love prefers. Love prefers. Now, some of you women, you said that you were trying to, you were elbowing your spouse at the same time. You're like, you get that? Love prefers. All right, none of that. Um, he, here's what happens, right? When love doesn't prefer and love is selfish, love is a trap. 
because it's really lust and pride. I want what I want, but here's the trap. He said, it's quickly fading. It doesn't last. It destroys. It has desires that trick us because my desires are corrupted. My want to makes me want to do things that are not in my best interest because I am spiritually corrupted by sin. Sin is separation from God and all that is best and good for my life. And when I'm separated from God and all that is good and best for my life, my want to makes me want to do things that will actually hurt and destroy me and hurt and destroy others. So I follow my want to and it's not what's best for me. It's a trap. And so John in his writing says that's called lust in contrast to God-like love. And he said there's a, a better way. But this lust that comes from um, the fracturing spiritually from sin wrecks my life, hurts others, and it leads to a forever without God. And then John writes this. He says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So he goes, here's the thing. When you have God in your life, God's love is in you. And as a result, you obey God and become more like Jesus. There's another better way of living. And it looks different than the way the world around you lives. And so let me just focus on this for a moment. Right now, inside of you, there is a trap a trap that you want, you want this, but when you do what you want, it wrecks your life. And then you have this religious trap that says you have to. And the harder you try, the more you realize you don't measure up. But there's this third way, which is the love of God. God loves me so much that he came to me. Jesus Christ came to earth, died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. He absorbed my eternal death sentence your eternal death sentence. So that when he died, he died once for all. When he rose from the dead, he rose to give us victory over sin, over the power of this spiritual corruption at work, wrecking and ruining our lives. He set us free and gave us victory over eternal death and offered us eternal life. So that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is both forgiven and given new and forever life. And so let me just pause, say right now, Regardless of how you've been living, what you've done, I want you to know that you are loved by God, that God wants to remove the guilt and the shame from your life. He wants to give you a new life and forever life. He wants to lavish his love on you and his love lasts forever. And the only thing you can do is simply believe it. You don't have to do anything. You just simply believe in Jesus by faith and God's spirit enters into your spirit who, who, and he forgives you and he gives you this new kind of life. And so wherever you are right now, I wanna encourage you, would you just say yes to Jesus? Just say yes, I believe in Jesus by faith. You can say it, you can lean over and say it to someone else, hey, I'm saying yes to Jesus. You can pray it. But what, however you're making that commitment, would you let us know, text the name Jesus to 81411. Now, if you're joining us online and you're driving down the road, would you pull over to the side before you text us that? Um, we don't want to hear any terrible stories. But all, anyone else, if you would, if you're joining us in person, you're joining us online, just pull out your smartphone, text us 
Jesus to 81411, and we're going to follow up with you to encourage you as you begin this new relationship with God. And there it is. That's the key. It's a new relationship with God. And as you begin a relationship with God, God's love fills your life. And as God's love comes into your life, he begins to change your life so that you begin to reflect the love of God. This is really important. I, I, I want to make sure you don't miss this moment. As I get, I'm, I'm going to go into uh, the rest of my teaching. I'm going to talk about um, how God's love affects marriage and roles in marriage and parenting and relationships. Here's the deal. In no way is this an attempt to tell our culture how to live. This only makes sense when you believe in Jesus by faith. That is critical and important. You have to believe in Jesus by faith and God's love has to be in you in order to spill out of you. And when God's love is in you, it should change you to begin to live out the love of God in all other relationships. What I mean by this is this is not a political statement. This isn't a statement about social justice issues. We are not trying to legislate or politicize our values. What, what I see very clearly in scripture is that this is not political, but personal. And it's not about something temporary, but something eternal. So that it changes my life. I want the love of God in me to change me and how I interact with others so that God's love in me affects my relationships. You, Christians, stop expecting the rest of the world to act like they believe in Jesus when they don't. If they don't believe in Jesus, then we can't expect their marriages to look like Jesus would want them to look. If they don't follow Jesus, we can't expect their gender identity or their gender roles or their parenting to reflect the way of Jesus. Hopefully you got that as clearly as I could say it. So this is about me personally and about you personally and how God's love changes the way I live because... That's what John and the Apostle Paul wrote about, how love changes us. It does, you don't legislate love. You don't politicize love. You don't preach to people love. You live it out, and it changes you. So my goal is not so much to preach at you, but to say, guys, we're in this together. And what I know is this. The love of God is life-changing. So how does it change our lives? Here's what John says. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. He said, this love is like a light that's turned on in my life, and suddenly for the first time I can see clearly. Before I was stumbling in my relationships, before I was stumbling in how I treated people, but now the light of God's love is turned on, and I can see clearly how to walk and how to live and how to relate with people. The light has been turned on for you today. And so I want to invite you into the light of God's love and how it changes how you live. And so let me, let me go to this. What, what he does next is John then gets super specific. He goes, children, here's how God's love changes the way you interact with your parents. Who knew? Parents, this is how it changes how you interact with your children. Husbands, this is how it affects you and your wife. Wives, this is how it affects you and your husband. So with that, there's another passage of scripture that's kind of a parallel passage. It's in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. So same context. And the Apostle Paul is also writing about these relationships and how love changes them. You with me? So buckle up. Here we go. This is gonna get personal fast. Um, so the first group I want to talk to 
because I feel like I can be a little bit more brutally honest with you and a little tougher on you than everybody else. Guys, I'm gonna talk to you for a little bit, all right? Because at least if I'm talking at, you know, to you, like we're in this together, and whatever I say to you, my wife is gonna repeat to me at home, all right? So here we go. The first thing you read, this is Ephesians chapter five. He, he, um, the Apostle Paul says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, right off the bat, you notice that? What, what do you see? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we love God, we love each other. And we submit mutually to one another. We we prefer others above ourselves. This isn't saying wives, it's not just a wife submit or children submit. This is a, we're all willing to submit to others out of reverence for God. That's the foundation of everything else we're gonna build off of. Prefer others above yourselves. Then he says, husbands, love your wives. This isn't a Valentine's card. Um, it's, it's actually culturally provocative 2,000 years ago in a, in a very abusive patriarchal society, meaning broadly at a, at a, at a global level, you have a male-dominated societies for, for Christianity to step up and say, no, 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 husbands, love, adore your wives was shocking and culturally controversial. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. So what's the application point? Very simply this, husbands prefer their wives by providing security. In a marriage relationship or in the way a husband loves his wife and loves his family is by love means security and safety. Most women understand love when they feel safe and secure. Please know I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush here. I'm just, when I try to interpret scripture and saying, here's what I see scripturally, that women need to be given a sense of security. And so how do men do that? By following the example of Jesus. That's, that's who Paul holds up as the ultimate example. Husbands, you love your wife the way Jesus loved us and gave his life for us. So men... Husbands, your responsibility is that you lay down your life for your wife. You're laying aside your agenda, your ego, your pride, your want-tos to build up and strengthen your wife and provide security and safety for your family. That, there's three ways that you and I can do that. By leading well, by providing well, and by pro- protecting well. Leading This means that you're not following the example of the spiritual leadership of your wife. You're setting the course in your home. You establish the values in your home. When there's there's a difficult situation, you step up with courage and you lead the way by example. You lead in prayer. That doesn't mean you have to pray more than the rest of your family, but you lead in prayer. You're not waiting for your spouse to say, hey, let's go to church. Like, Awesome that you're here, right? Awesome that you're joining us online. The point is, as men, we are responsible to lead the way because that takes courage. That's the way God's designed you to lead. And you can create a sense of security in your home and in your marriage when you protect. Now, this is the moment, right, where you're gonna jump in front of the bullet that's coming at them, right? Like, you save the day. Oh, like this is the movie moment. No, no, no. This is an everyday heroic moment. You're protecting by standing in between and guarding your spouse and your family from the forces that want to tear them down to create insecurity and feelings of not being safe. 
So I have to guard my home from the forces of darkness, from spiritual forces. So I pray for them, right? I protect them. I set boundaries in place to make sure my children aren't being preyed on. They're not exposed to things that are dangerous to them. And when they are, I step in and protect them from that, right? I'm also guarding them from the vulnerabilities that come from temptation and sin by guiding them out of these kind of decisions and behaviors and lifestyles that are out to destroy them. I protect them. I provide, right? Men, you are responsible to lead by providing. By the way, you notice I'm going to camp out more on directing this about men than anything else, right? Because I feel like I can talk to you. Okay, so here we go. Um, by, protect, by providing. Does that mean that you have to be the sole provider or you have to earn the most in the home? No, that's not what that's not what scripturally is talking about. It's that you carry the burden of responsibility to set the financial values of the home and make sure that those values are aligned with the word of God and that you bear the burden of the financial needs of the home. Regardless of how much your spouse makes or doesn't make, you carry the burden, that, that weight, that responsibility on your shoulders. So providing means that you set values, right? And so I just thought I would give you an example of this. In my home, here's, here's our financial values. We live simply. When it, not just like, so the statement is often like, live within your means. I, I would take it a step further and say, live well within your means. Um, so we don't need everything we want, and we don't need to be doing everything we want to do. We live simply. Secondly, we live on less to give more. I think that's pretty scriptural, which means we're doing without so we can give away. We can be generous to God, to the church, to kingdom builders, to others that are in need. And then third, if, when, if and when there is extra, we, we choose to create moments rather than purchase material possessions. So we want moments, not material stuff, right? That's a values in my home. The point is, as men, you have a responsibility to set the values. And then one last thing I want to hit uh, target regarding men when they love by preferring their wives and their children by creating a sense of security is this. One simple word, faithfulness. Men, uh, I, I ask my kids, my, my boys regularly, you're like, what's your favorite superhero? What's your, like, who's your favorite Avenger? By the way, two of my boys, their favorite is Hawkeye. Like, I'm a, I'm an, I'm, you know, like, I'm a Captain America guy. Like, I'm a, anybody Captain America? You're out? No? You guys not paying attention? What's going on here? Uh, I, like, which means I don't like, I'm not an Iron Man guy, I like Captain Mary. All right, whatever, they like Hawkeye. And then I'll say like, hey, what's your favorite superpower? If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? Man, you know what your superpower is? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. You don't quit. You don't quit on your home. You don't quit on your kids. You don't quit on your marriage. You stay and live and serve and love long. You don't quit. That's your superpower. All right, let me quickly shift because I got to hit a couple other relationships, as you know. All right, so Ephesians 5, 33, the, he says this, and the wife must respect her husband. Wives prefer their husbands through respect. Men understand love when they receive respect. Women need security. Men need respect. So in the way God designed relationship, women are to submit in respect. 
They honor their husband's God-given authority and leadership, and they, they celebrate that. They affirm that. They build him up rather than tearing him down. Your, your, your husband should overhear you bragging about him, not tearing him down. This is a God-designed relationship where women are willing to submit by respecting. And this is that moment where our culture says this is abusive patriarchy, right? And I would go just the opposite. Actually, if you look at the results, so wanna know what research shows in our modern culture? They do studies on how well-adjusted, how happy people are in their relationships. You know what the happiest group of women are in relationships? Gender traditional marriages where the couple goes to church regularly. Women in those relationships are by far the happiest. And it's not even, there's not even a close second. And they see in those relationships a 50% drop in any kind of abuse in the home. You're the safest and the happiest when you're in a, tradi- a gender traditional marriage uh, that's where you're regularly going to church. All right, so there you go. Um, let, me, let me briefly hit a few other relationships as a couple, well, first, let me just say as a couple, right? Your responsibility as a couple is that your love is not about you. The point is, love is not about you. You're a living example. You're a living illustration of God's love for us and the way we respond to that love, right? Husbands are supposed to love their wives the way Jesus loves the church. So husbands, are you showing others the way God loves us? Wives respond to their husband the way the church, the way Christians respond to Jesus. Wives, are you showing others how much you love God by the way you love your husband? And the point is, in your marriage, it's not about you. It's not about what you get out of it. You mutually benefit from it, but your marriage is an illustration to the watching world of how much God loves us and how much we enjoy that love. Then the Apostle Paul talks about parenting. And children, he goes like this, Ephesians chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And so I'm gonna briefly hit each of those two relationships. Parents prefer their children through tough love. Tough love. What that means is you are the God-given authority in your home. Christian homes are not child-led. They are not child-centered. Our children aren't making our decisions. If I choose to invite my children to be part of a decision, it's my choice to collaborate with them, but I don't have to bring them into the decisions. Um, Why? Because God's design was that the parents have the authority in the home and lead their home in love by guiding them with discipline. Why? Because God disciplines those he loves. He expects parents to discipline their children and put boundaries around children to keep them safe, healthy, and so that they learn to honor the parents' authority because as they honor parents' authority, they will learn to honor God's authority over time. Parents, your responsibility is to slowly hand off your children to God, right? So as they learn to follow your lead, eventually they will learn to follow God's lead. So you, you've got to, you have to be that authority, make sure that they honor that authority. And then children, you prefer your parents through honor. Very simply, this one's pretty straightforward. You have to obey your parents, right? You honor them by obeying them. 
Children in the home have a responsibility that you're following God by following your parents. You're honoring God by honoring your parents. You're, you're, you're not gonna learn to obey God if you don't obey your parents. So parents, this is your moment where you can be like, yeah, finally, Patrick, it gives me like a, a little bit of a boost here today. You can bring that home and you can share that one. One more thing I wanna talk about is how this affects even singles, right? So talk about love prefers others above ourselves. Singles, you prefer others through your purity. He's talking about that love, this kind of love is in contrast to a worldly kind of love that is really lust. I want what I want and I take it. And so the contrast is singles. Now this is true for every one of us, but I think singles, you can apply this directly. You prefer others to your purity, which means your heart is pure and wherever there is impurity, you're asking God to forgive that and remove that. You don't just take what you want whenever you want it. You honor God with a pure heart, with pure motives, guard your heart, and make sure that your, your relationships are God-honoring. That's why he says, when you, the kind of love you have is you treat others like brothers and sisters. That, that can keep your heart pure, all right? So as I, as I land this message, let me just invite every one of you. I, honestly, I kept this message for last because I was hoping that maybe I could have an excuse to not preach it. Because if you can't tell, it's, just, it's a little bit difficult, right? It's a little bit tough. But here I am, because you need to hear it. And my goal isn't to give you information or even a little bit of inspiration, but that you experience life change. How does God want to transform your life, your relationships through his love? You can't do it without his love. But in God's love, you can prefer others above yourself. So what's the specific way that God wants you to prefer your spouse, your children, your parents, your peers? So would you take a moment right now, really what, what I felt was valuable for you is to have just a moment to pray and say, God, I, help me to live out the kind of love that prefers, prefers my wife, prefers my husband, prefers others. Would you take that moment? And then we're gonna go and we're gonna begin to sing. But even as we sing, Really, what, I, what I'm asking is that God would give you the kind of love that prefers others. Would you do that right now? Take a moment. Would you pray? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.